Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Dane Anderson. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Research Director Michael Barnes to discuss what's ahead for the Asia-Pacific region in 2022. Welcome, Michael. Uh, thanks very much, Jen and Dane. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, so Michael, what is the current business climate for the past two years and how do you see that changing as we enter 2022? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think first off, you know, there's always you always need the caveat, right? When you talk about Asia Pacific as a region in broad terms, um, you know, it is wildly heterogeneous. Uh, you know, the the there's vast differences, probably more differences than similarities between places like Australia and India and China. And relative to Europe and North America, they're not even remotely close together either. So starting with that caveat, I think, you know, what we're seeing is the the very real sense that we've gone from essentially, as I said, two years of kind of reactively responding to the pandemic to a very real sense that it's time to be proactive, to get on the front foot and start to address some of the, the challenges and the opportunities and to look for ways to innovate around you know, the changing market dynamics, customer employee expectations. So that's kind of the, the, the overall sense. And, I, and I'll make that statement across the region because I think it applies to all the key markets. And Michael, you know, we've heard in the media about a zero COVID policy in some parts of of Asia Pacific and other countries that are taking a more living with COVID type of approach. So maybe just give a quick scan of of where the countries are. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a good point, Dan. I think overall, what we're seeing is yeah, the shift in mindset towards uh, towards living quote unquote, living with COVID as opposed to taking that much more um, draconian approach of zero cases. It's not the case in all markets, uh, but we've moved in that direction for sure. But it's, you know, I mean, in terms of mindset, it's important to, to point out, if you look at it globally, you know, the markets that have had the strictest, longest lockdowns are pretty much all in Asia. Uh, and so we've been dealing it in kind of different ways. You know, I recall even even six months ago, kind of looking with envy at folks traveling around Europe and going on holidays because uh, that just wasn't on the cards for us. And that's true, not just Australia, across the board in Asia. But again, there's that sense now that from a public policy perspective, it's more about living with COVID. Uh, the vaccination rates have uh, increased dramatically. The borders are beginning to open up, uh, and that's having an impact on both um, both individual, let's say, customer consumer sentiment, but absolutely on on business sentiment as well. We're going to see that actually over the next twelve months. Just one more question, Michael, before we jump into the the predictions that we made. We'll be sharing three of them with uh, with folks today, but um, digital. So, of course, during the lockdowns, there was a shift toward digital because there was no other option. Would you like to give just a quick update on what impact did this have in terms of the digital business models for companies in the region? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's another great point. It's, it's absolutely accelerated. As you said, we did some research around that uh, a few months ago. And, um, and to your point, uh, you know, in the absence of any type of physical engagement, all you have is virtual engagement. And so there was a dramatic acceleration in the momentum of digital uh, and digital initiatives. Uh, the, the challenge actually though, what we've seen certainly over the last few months is, um, 
is, is a question as to whether that acceleration continues. Um, it's actually slowed down a little bit as folks have kind of gotten past the initial burst of energy uh, in response to COVID. So the challenge for organizations now is finding ways to embed that uh, increased digital culture. Uh, and, and we're seeing it. And again, to your point, one of the, you know, the first prediction we're going to talk about is around digital uh, from, a, from a government standpoint and the fact that we are seeing a, a pretty massive uptake in, uh, in, in the innovation and the delivery of capabilities around a digital society. And Asia is absolutely leading the way on that charge. And is that just driven by the pandemic and sort of some of these consumer behaviors? Or was that shift already happening and underway? kind of APAC leading the charge from a digital society, digital government services perspective? Well, yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, you know, I think it was already happening, but uh, there's there's some unique characteristics in Asia Pacific that I think are worth calling out because, you know, it, it kind of, I don't want it to go unsaid, you know, creating a digital society and in particular delivering digital services is completely contingent on citizens being willing and in fact, in many cases, eager to adopt those digital services. Yeah. So, so you know, it, it is really interesting, these differences that we've seen in Asia Pacific compared to uh, other markets around the world as it relates to citizen trust in governments. And we did a survey earlier this year as part of our global trust imperative survey. And we asked respondents from different countries, to what degree do you believe that each of the following people and organizations follow through on the promises they make? And it was fascinating to see how big of a difference there was in Asia Pacific countries compared to the West. In Singapore, for example, 61% of respondents trust their government to follow through on the promises they make. In India, it was 67%. What do you think it would be in the US? It was half that, it was 29%. In France, it was 23%. In the UK, it was 30%. So what we see is in Asia Pacific, as um, governments and countries try to create this digital society, we see much more citizen backing and belief and readiness in these investments. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. That is a, just a massive contrast, and I think it uh, again it, it speaks well to the underlying uh, driver. Certainly, one of the fundamental drivers of this push uh, for a digital society. So, so what we're talking about specifically, the prediction for 2022 is that APAC will indeed pull ahead, uh, and and in fact far ahead of other regions, particularly uh, EMEA and North America in terms of becoming a digital society. But, but what does that mean? So, so just to unpack that, so at Forrester, when we talk about a digital society, we're talking about three core pillars, uh, if you will. The first one is access to digital government services. Uh, the second one is digital currency usage. And the third is data interoperability. And Michael, in the prediction itself, to what extent are we uh, expecting these di digital services and the digital society to emerge? Do we have any any numbers that uh, that measure it? Yeah, it's uh, look, it's it's always good to get some context about just the just the enormous size, uh, particularly from a population standpoint, of the region. 
And, and you know, one statistic I'll, I'll share to give you a sense of that. In 2022, at least 1 billion people in Asia Pacific will access digital government services. You know, that's billion with a B. So it's a huge number. Um, they're already in place in a few countries. So Singapore has SingPass. Australia has MyGov. India has Adhar. And what does this mean specifically for citizens or are there implications for local businesses when, when we're talking about digital government services? Yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about providing streamlined, uh, simplified access to government services. So, I mean, that sounds very basic and on, on some level it is, but if you break it down by, let's say the constituents, as you said, Jen, so for citizens, it's about self-service access to things like tax, rec tax records, health records, um, increasingly really useful for access to proof of vaccinations and vaccination travel certificates. So that's a huge benefit in terms of opening up the borders and allowing more freedom of movement for, um, for us as individuals. If you look at it from a business perspective, when they're engaging with the government, we're talking about simplifying access to applications, approvals, to procurement, uh, electronically signing contracts and agreements, basically making all of those things easier uh, and hence more effective. And then the third aspect is in terms of government to government interactions. So enabling simplified cross-border business and legal collaboration, as an example. And Michael, one of the um, interesting dynamics I think is, that's been in the, the the global media, not just here in Asia Pacific, is the relationship that the Chinese government has with its digital players. And I think um, this prediction touches on that relationship. Would you like to give a little bit more detail on on um, what we're seeing here in that part of that that uh, relationship? Yeah, look, there is um, there's absolutely a um, a a I don't want to say a battle going on, but a, but a bit of a struggle for um, for for control uh, of how, in particular, citizens are accessing digital services, and more specifically, who has access to the citizen or let's say customer data that goes along with that access. Um, you know, the Chinese government's perspective is that it shouldn't be controlled by a couple of large tech giants. Uh, and that's a, a big driver behind um, their push in this regard. And what about payments? That is one of the key points of collaboration between the Chinese government and the, the digital behemoths in the country. What are you seeing there? Yeah, I mean, and that flows directly into the, the second pillar of a digital society, which is around digital currency. Um, you know, again, to give some numbers for context, it's it's early days yet, but China is just miles ahead of any other market, either in region or globally, in terms of um, of, of pushing forward with a digital currency. So currently, more than twenty million Chinese consumers already use the digital yuan. Uh, and, and it's not just China, but again, they're ahead. But there's, um, there's plans, trials uh, in Australia, in India, in Japan. So it's another area where Asia as a whole is pushing forward. But uh, again, it's very much China driving this from a global standpoint. This might be nuanced, but you're not talking about a specific like cryptocurrency. Digital currency is different than cryptocurrency. Yeah, 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 it is indeed. Uh, it's a different thing. So, you know, so it's, it's, here's the, here's the best way to unpack it. 
So if you think about a digital currency, what we're talking about is a currency that is backed by a central bank. So technically, we're talking about central bank digital currency. So the acronym is CBDC. Um, so this is not the same as a cryptocurrency. Uh, and the difference is a cryptocurrency is unregulated. It is not backed by a central bank. So the easiest way, I suppose, to think about it, digital currency is backed by a central bank. Virtual currency, i.e. crypto, as the, the best example, is not. And why are they doing this, Michael? And what do you think, what, what are the benefits that they're trying to pursue? Yeah, there's a couple of, of, of drivers. I mean, the, the most obvious driver is as China is pushing for their currency to become a leading global currency. You know, right now, China is the second largest economy in the world, but the yuan is not a global currency by any measure. Uh, and they're looking to change that and having a very strong well-supported, um, broadly used digital currency and being so far ahead, ahead of other markets in delivering on that is a key way to, uh, to, to drive that usage globally. So, you, you know, you talked about some benefits, obviously, of being so far ahead, being a leading currency, but are there other drivers here, other benefits that China would see by you know, really pushing digital currency. So in addition to China's obvious drive to push the one to become a global currency, um, there's also another very real benefit, uh, and that's financial inclusion. Um, you know, the reality is China, like, like every other market on earth, uh, is slowly moving away from cash as a society. Uh, but there's a downside to that, actually. Uh, and in China, it's, 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 it's noticeable, again, it's the numbers we're talking about. So moving to cash actually excludes 225 million people uh, who don't have bank accounts. You know, these are folks outside of urban areas, typically, uh, and they don't have access. So they're being excluded, essentially, from this, uh, this opportunity. Uh, this potential. And so China, by pushing the digital currency that doesn't uh, require or ultimately won't require a bank account, is a way to include those folks uh, in, in the economy. And there's one other piece of this, Michael, which is data, right? Who, um, who controls the data? How, how is data shared? Uh, and that's, that's a very key piece of a digital society. So what are, what are we seeing from a data perspective um, in this area? Yeah, look, it's, I mean, that's the third key pillar, right? All of this is, is underpinned by data and in particular data interoperability. Um, so it's still early days. Uh, this is the, the least mature of the pillars, but we're moving in the right direction. So there are some frameworks already in place to connect governments uh, virtually. So for instance, the Australia-Singapore Digital Economy Agreement, the India-Singapore Payment Link. Um, these are new, but they're emerging quickly. Uh, and what they do overall, I mean, there's some clear benefits here to your point, Dane. It, you know, it paves the way for easier cross-border things like invoicing, trade documentation, um, access to data to develop new products, services. So it's, it's, it's a, another way to open up, uh, let's say, inclusion of more opportunities and innovations um, through that access uh, and let's say that differently, consistent access to data. Okay, so we've talked quite a bit on this this prediction. We're going through three today. Let's wrap this one up. What is, what is the key takeaway um, with this prediction that we made? 
Oh, look, bottom line, um, you know, if you are a, a tech firm in particular uh, and seeking opportunities for innovation, you absolutely need to have a strong focus on these three key pillars of a digital society. Uh, and by having that focus on the three key pillars, you're able to potentially uh, capitalize uh, on those and create differentiated capabilities. There's going to be a lot of opportunity on the back of these core capabilities, uh, and it's, it's, it's critical for technology uh, firms uh, seeking innovation to be across all of them. So, Michael, in your intro, you, you kind of talked about uh, a potential sense of return to normal, maybe, maybe some hesitancy around that, but can you talk about how is the current business climate impacting firms in region, their, their anywhere work strategy, hybrid work, return to office plans, and, and how does that compare to maybe other um, sort of trends we're seeing in, in other regions of the world? Yeah, it's really interesting, Jen. So we're definitely seeing the uh, the the rise in, as I said, you know, the pandemic stabilizing. To your point, vaccination rates are rising. So the next step is for workplaces to gradually open up, and we absolutely expect to see that happen, and particularly in the in the coming months. You know, as we get through the the Christmas holiday season, followed pretty quickly by Chinese New Year. So we're looking at kind of February timeframe where most firms are. Are putting plans in place to start to open up. So the big question becomes, you know, what does that look like? What does opening up actually mean? And where does you know the anywhere work policy or the flexible work policy come into play from a regional standpoint? And that and that brings us to prediction number two, right, Michael? So let's uh, let's put some teeth in this in this uh, statement and let's let's share the numbers. Yeah, well, exactly right. And so the prediction is uh, that in 2022, only 40% of firms in the region will make anywhere work permanent. So for context, uh, that compares with 70% globally. So it's a pretty dramatic difference uh, in terms of the percent of firms that will embrace anywhere work. But we need to unpack that because it's not necessarily a, a negative uh, or, or a positive for that matter. There are very good reasons why there's a difference and we need to, to be clear on what those are. What are those reasons? Because I, I mean, it's really interesting. It's a pretty significant gap between the region and the rest of the world, right? So there's got to be some key drivers there. Yeah, it's, 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 it's massive. It's a massive difference. So if you unpack it, you can kind of think about it from two perspectives. So the first one is kind of structural. You know, what's different or unique about Asia Pacific? And there's a couple of things. So one, we have to uh, consider the fact that the region has a disproportionately large percent of manufacturing relative to other industries. Uh, and only 34% of workers in that sector can effectively work from anywhere. You know, contrast that to information workers, for instance, who have far more flexibility. Um, so that's one. The second one is the large number of outsourcing firms in Asia Pacific. So if you look at markets like India, Philippines, for instance, um, a lot of outsourcing firms have purpose-built secure campuses. Uh, these are modern facilities with high availability um, 
you know, these firms simply can't provide anywhere close to the same level of service in remote locations with poor infrastructure, which is where a lot of their staff would be if they weren't actually working in the campus. Uh, and then there's the third reason, and, and this isn't unique to Asia Pacific, but because of the large number of call centers in the region, uh, it hits Asia Pacific quite hard. And that's the fact that what we're seeing is some significant pushback from not only employees, but from unions and regulators um, against the contact center operators who are actually insisting on surveilling their employees working from home. So in other words, installing cameras uh, in their employees' homes to replicate the type of surveillance that happens in call centers. Uh, and for most folks, you know, frankly, that's simply not on. And are there any other reasons, Michael, that the research uncovered? You know, are there any behavioral or or cultural dynamics that that are driving this too? Are there any um, cultural or intrinsic uh, factors uh, from the workers' perspective that drive this shift? Yep. Yeah, so, if those are the structural, you know, reasons for this this difference, then the the the, the flip side is the, is the cultural differences. And again, you know, these can't be understated. Uh, for one. In Asia Pacific, it's still um, extremely common in large parts of the region for families to live in high density, you know, multi-generational uh, environments or scenarios. And, you know, just, just think about, you know, your own situation uh, and trying to work from home in that type of environment. It's really difficult and particularly for an extended period of time. So it's not at all surprising that 65% of information workers, these are the folks that that feasibly can work from home, 65% in region are actually eager to return to the office. Uh, and why is that? Well, 58% say they're less productive working at home during COVID. It's as simple as that. Uh, and you know, th there's there's some trends like that globally, but I want to contrast that. It's 58% in region versus 46% globally. So it's it's a pretty big swing, uh, and that at the core is the reason that there's um, you know going to be far less feasible anywhere work uh, in the region. So as a business leader sort of staring down the market dynamics, I mean, what is the guidance that we're, we're sharing with them about the return to work, their strategy and, and the implementation of said strategy? Yeah, look, I mean, in terms of the bottom line, what it really means is whether you're a, you know, a global firm operating in Asia Pacific or a regional firm operating in different markets, one size does not and will not fit all. It's as simple as that. You know, you need to plan your anywhere work strategy uh, around both of those structural uh, and cultural considerations, uh, including feasibility, uh, but also, you know, the expectations of your employees. If you're able to do that and have some flexibility, then you can uh, greatly increase your chances of rolling out and sustaining a successful anywhere work strategy. So, Michael, can you share, you know, what's our prediction as it relates to APAC firms and their approach to sustainability in 2022? Unfortunately, what we see and certainly what we expect over the next 12 months is that APAC firms uh, will lag their peers. In fact, they'll continue to lag their peers in other regions on the sustainability front. Um, and, you know, I guess I don't, there's two ways to think about it. I'll give you good news and bad news because uh, it's not all bad. Um, the good news 
is that we're absolutely seeing uh, an increased momentum around climate action as a business priority across Asia Pacific. So we're seeing improvements there. And, and frankly, we expect them to continue. So we are quite optimistic overall. Um, but the bad news is that there's a um, pretty wide uh, amount of regional inconsistencies at the government level. Uh, and what we're seeing is, that, you know, it's hindering real progress. And the reason it's pretty straightforward, you know, this inconsistency among the messaging and the approach among governments, that's creating confusion. Uh, but even worse, it's it's giving firms kind of cover, if you will, to delay taking the action that they desperately need to take. What did we find when we uh, looked into um, the market and conducted some research? What's the data that backs this prediction up? Yeah, we did a couple of really cool uh, research projects around this. So the first one, uh, and this was done at the beginning of this year, that's when it was published. Uh, we published an analysis of the sustainability plans of the Fortune Global 200 firms. Uh, so we did that. We, you know, we analyzed the public uh, sustainability reports, climate action plans to understand what they were actually doing. And what we found is that of the Fortune Global 200 that are based in Asia Pacific, only 26% uh, had appointed a sustainability lead. And just to be clear, we're talking about someone at the director, at the VP or executive level. In other words, a senior leader who has uh, funding, power, and frankly, a mandate to drive change within the organization. Um, now, just for contrast, so again, that's 26% in Asia Pacific, compare that to EMEA, where it's 81%. North America, where it's 92% of firms that had a sustainability lead. And so that's that was the starting point. And then what we did uh, more recently, in fact, we just published it earlier this month, was an analysis specific to the region. So what we did was analyze the sustainability plans of 127 of the largest firms across 12 key markets in the region. So why did we choose those firms? Well, um, it was based primarily on, uh, on revenue and number of employees. And the idea was very much to identify the firms that would have the greatest near-term impact on climate action, just based on their size and their environmental footprint. So again, there's some good news here. With this most recent study, which is about happened about nine months after the first one, the number to appoint a sustainability lead has actually increased. It's up to 33%. So we're seeing some progress there. Um, but even more, uh, I suppose, positive, uh, and what gives us even more optimism is the fact that 53% of these large firms in region have uh, publicly committed to target dates for reducing or eliminating their carbon emissions. Uh, and that's similar. It was 55% in the global study we did. So not that far off, which is really good to see. And then the third number we looked at closely was the percent of firms that have actually committed to a, a specific date to reach carbon neutrality. And in region, that's 41% uh, folks. So what does that mean? Well, that is the date by which they've committed to achieving net zero carbon emissions. So that's either by generating less CO2 themselves or because it's they, they won't be able to cut it all out immediately, compensating for the CO2 that they do continue to generate by purchasing carbon offsets. So there's some promising signs there for the future, but 
it looks as if in 2022, the region will lag. Yeah, I mean, spot on. The reality is, again, I'll, I'll refer back to COP26. The good news is that was a an event that forced some action. So as a direct result of that event happening and the exposure that it, uh, it provided and the kind of the spotlight it put on some laggards, what we saw is Australia committed finally uh, at the federal level to a date for carbon neutrality. Uh, India committed finally to a date for carbon neutrality. Um, that's the good news, but as we all know, you know that's just a starting point, right? Um, a date is, is, is just a number. What, what we need to see now is the actual firm plans in place to move towards that date. Uh, and that's, you know, I'll, I'll be generous here and say uh, those are a bit vague at the moment. But again, you have to start somewhere. So I'll consider that progress that they've at least committed to a date. And Michael, just for those who are considering investing more here, beyond um, perhaps feeling as if it's the right thing to do, is it good business? You know, why, if if they're looking at balancing their business, it, does it make sense for their business and, and why? I know this is an area that you've uh, been researching. Um, does What is the business impact for these organizations? Yeah, look, it's it's really interesting. You know, I'll, I'll use the example of, of Japan um, and why it's so important for the government messaging to, to be clear and consistent. Uh, and I'll contrast that to some of the other markets where they've resisted uh, embracing climate action. And the difference is the point when leaders um, stop thinking about all the negatives, right? Start, stop looking at investments in sustainability as hindering economic growth and actually realize that investing in sustainability will drive innovation and will set not only governments, uh, countries, but also firms up for a massive uh, influx of, of new in investment, new innovations, and huge amounts of potential growth. So there's the business side. It's just good business because it will drive growth. Um, but then there's also clearly uh, the, the, the trust side with consumers. Uh, as consumers, as customers, we are absolutely becoming far more attuned to firms' sustainability strategies. And, you know, kind of performative action, lip service um, will, will not do it. We increasingly can see right through it. And um, as we've seen as a result of the pandemic, what that equates to is shifting our spending uh, to firms that actually are committed and are proving that through their actions and their deeds that they're committed to sustainability and therefore there's someone we want to actually uh, give our, our business to. And so the nice thing is when those come together, what it does is create kind of a critical mass, right? And then what we see is the actual acceleration. It's good business and it's also key to keeping uh, and growing your customer base. And then there's no way it's going to stop at that point. And I feel like we're at that inflection point now, which is the kind of core reason that we're optimistic. So Michael, we've covered a ton of ground here, but important to note that these are just a few of our predictions for the region. So um, more for our clients within our client experience for sure. And obviously a lot of dynamism in region, and lots of opportunities. So thank you for joining us today and we look forward to uh, seeing how this plays out in 2022. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks very much, Jen. Thanks, Dane. Thanks, Michael. 
If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.